evolutionary change is iterative. It's making things a little bit better within the current paradigm. This is revolutionary change. We need to have constructive disruption. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host, Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we speak with Joel Neeb. Joel is unlike most executives you get to meet, and it's not just because his energy and passion is intoxicating. Joel has an accomplished career as a fighter pilot, as a CEO of a transformational consulting practice focusing on the tech sector, and now, in his own third act, as the VP of Execution and Transformation for the VMware CEO. We caught up with Joel recently and talked with him about what the financial services industry can learn from tech companies and more specifically about revolutionary transformation, why you should sell business outcomes rather than the product that gets you there, and how, in just a few years' time, the most successful organisations will be those with the teams aligned culturally and operationally around customer success. Welcome, Joel. Great to have you join us today. Thank you. Very excited to be here. So can you give us a quick intro about you and your role? Sure. So I've been at VMware for a grand total of four weeks at this point. I am the vice president of execution and transformation in the office of the CEO. And I joined to help accelerate the transition from Act 2 into Act 3 uh, at VMware and help to transform the culture and the operating model to better serve our customers in this new environment where we're working backwards from customer outcomes and subscription and customer obsession. Fabulous. So, so from a career perspective, then, how did you end up here? You know, how, how did you get started? Yeah, great question. It was, it was definitely a circuitous path. So I started off my career as a fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force. I graduated from the Air Force Academy way back in 1999. As a 23-year-old, I went into flight training and I was flying airplanes faster than the speed of sound, three feet away from seven of my closest friends up in the sky. And I spent 14 years as a fighter pilot and an instructor pilot uh, within the military. And then I made the leap into the business world after those 14 years were over with. I joined a company that was a consulting firm called Afterburner, where we helped teams to align along a vision, a common strategy and a common plan and then turn that alignment into disciplined execution and, and really help to build some of the transformative initiatives behind key success stories of businesses. Were you planning on that as your career path? You know, what did you want to do when you were leaving school? Yeah, not a bit. So, I mean, the first piece of it was was mapped out for me to a certain extent. I did go to the Air Force Academy, which is a school where you, as a freshman, you know, when I graduate, I'm going to become an officer in the military. You don't necessarily know what type of role you're going to take on, but but I clearly understood that I was going to be in the military for some period of time. And then my goal was to become a pilot. I will say, though, it wasn't the thing I was enamored with. There's plenty of students at the Air Force Academy that had been planning this their entire lives, and they could, they'd memorized every airplane and all the specs of, of these aircraft. I wasn't that person. Um, I'd always thought airplanes were very interesting, but I didn't have that passion. And it wasn't until I got inside the jet that uh, I really got the, the bug for flying. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So look, looking back then across your career, what would you say was your career defining moment? My career defining moments. Gosh, if it's hard to bring it down to just one, but if I had to, it, it goes back to those days in flight school. And you think of us as 23-year-olds 
the thing that was the epiphany for me at that time and, and really the most transformative moment in my life, or at least my professional career, was when you realize that you're flying faster than the speed of sound in a $50 million machine, and just four short months ago, you were driving a car, and that was the limit of, of your capabilities. And, and now here you were, you know, spit out of this system with all these new capabilities and a, an ability to operate in a team and, and do these things at a very young age. And you think the same thing that everyone else thinks in this role, and that's there's nothing special about me. You wouldn't have tapped me on the shoulder in, in high school and said, this is the person that's gonna go do these amazing things at 23 years old. And so I realized that there was something very special about the system from which I was, uh, I'd just been put through and that transformed me. And I, I made a mental note that there's something magical about building an elite team and putting them on an inspiring mission and, and having a process to transform. And that's become really the background and the backbone for my work ever since. So what would you say has been your proudest moment? For me, my proudest moment, I'll answer that a little bit differently. So I, I had a stage four cancer battle in life. It was 2010 and I had been given a very small chance to live. And, and in that moment, uh, I was reflecting on my life and, and I was told that I had about 18 months to live at that time. And I'm, I should mention, I'm, I'm doing great now. I have zero cancer, completely remission. All the doctors say it's 100% in the rear view mirror but it, it allowed me to have kind of those deathbed reflections, right? And I looked back at my life and I considered two things. What were the things I was proud of and what were the things that, that I regretted? And I was a little bit surprised the things I was proud of weren't the accolades, right? The things I was going for, the ego-boosting opportunities, the trophies on the wall, those things mattered none at all to me. I couldn't care less about those moments. What I was most proud of is when I was on an elite team with an inspiring mission and together we accomplished something. So whether that was graduating from the Air Force Academy, which is, is not a college, it's something you endure and you have to, you have to make it through, or is becoming a fighter pilot and operating on these missions to keep the president of the United States safe as we traveled abroad. Those individual moments are my most proud, uh, the, the things I'm most proud of. When I was outside of my comfort zone with an incredible team and together we were more than we were individually. That's a humbling answer than I've ever had before on that question. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you. Follow that, Matthew. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. <laughs> so, so Joel, when we originally reached out to you, you were the CEO of Afterburner because, because you know, we'd been doing some work previously about transformation of tech firms and and stuff. So I thought it'd be really interesting to to reach out to you and see if we could get you to come and talk with us. And, and so I had no idea you were coming to VMware. So, so what is it that drew you to VMware? VMware, first of all, has the most unique culture that I've been exposed to. I've, I've gotten a chance to work all across the tech sector as a consultant, and I absolutely loved my second professional chapter at Afterburner, where I started as a consultant and I had the, the opportunity to lead the company as the CEO in, in my final days. But I knew that there was something pulling me into this culture, into this mission, into this team at VMware. And I've gotten to create lifelong friendships with uh, a lot of the leaders here. I've, I've uh, traveled the world and, and supported initiatives. And, and, and I've gotten to, to get close to other companies as well through my consulting role. But there was something unique about this company. This moment in time, why I chose to, to join VMware is very specific though. I think VMware has an incredible opportunity 
to transform and become something very unique for the market right now. I think two things are occurring. We have a burning platform. We have an incredible install base, an incredible brand. We've assembled all the right technology behind the scenes. So the burning platform is, can we use this window of time to leverage all of these resources to be more than we have been in the past and, and really create these transformative business outcomes for our customers? And that's the other piece. So we have the burning platform for change. And then the other piece is just how much our customers need us right now. As a consultant, I saw every company in every industry uniquely within the last two years has said that technology is our strategic resource and our strategic competitive advantage to succeed. I didn't hear that five years ago. I didn't hear that 10 years ago. So all of a sudden, we've seen this elevation of technology to be the single competitive advantage that everyone is going after. And of course, these, these companies and all these industries don't really know what the word technology means or what they're really asking for, but they understand that there's something that's going to make their business easier, that, that's going to allow them to be more effective in the market. And we know on the technology vendor side that we can provide that. It's just a matter of articulating that story in their business terms. And I want to help VMware to translate all of the puzzle pieces they've assembled into that big picture for the market. Wow. Okay. Okay. So look, last question in this section, should we call you Joel or Thor? <laughs> so I've been known as Thor for 20 years. Uh, that was what I was dubbed as a fighter pilot. That was a call sign I was given, just like a Top Gun. Everybody has a nickname. That's real. We all do that. And I'll tell you, everybody gets a cool sounding call sign, but there's always an embarrassing story behind it. In other words, you have to do something boneheaded to uh, to earn that call sign as well. And then, and then to answer your question, in this chapter, honestly, I'm, I'm showing up as Joel. I, I, I've been Thor for a long time. I want to be in the background and, and, you know, this is about the VMware transformation and, and I want to be just another team member in that process. And I'm, and I'm really excited to be Joel in this chapter and support in whatever way I can. Fabulous. So I think um, after this and we've stopped recording, we'll have a quick conversation, uh, you, me and Brian, and we'll go through our boneheaded items and we'll work out some call signs. All right, Brian? Brian? That's right. <laughs> we'll, we'll come up with one by the end of the call. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think if we won't yeah. record that. No, no, I, I dread to think what mine would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Joel, just just a question, and and you mentioned it at the, at the top of your commentary. You talked about VMware moving from Act Two to Act Three. How how do you describe that transit? Because a lot of people on the, who will be listening uh, are outside the VMware organization, and we have published that. But just to remind people. When you talk about Act Two to Act Three, what do you? How do you talk about that? Yeah, it's a it's a transformation internally of the culture and operating model, and externally it looks like the following. In Act Two, we were designed around products, and we were designed around iterating for those products, and it was a great model to support going to market with products, selling products that have a point solution for our customers, and that's exactly what they were looking for. That's what the, the market was asking for. They wanted to have technology solutions sold to technology enthusiasts. And so we would sell them on the new features, the new iteration, the new version, whatever we had from, from a technology perspective. And we were selling to a very technologically inclined market. And, uh, and so we could speak tech to them and they'd love that. Act three is about something very different. Act two is about silo focus, about product focus. Act three is about customer focus and customer obsession. And here's what that really means. Here's what that comes down to. 
We can no longer go to market and talk about our products. We can no longer become enamored with our own technology. We have to be enamored with customer outcomes. We have to be enamored with business outcomes. I'll give you an example of an Act 3 customer that, that I talked to this past weekend. So he's a friend of mine. He's a president of a $700 million construction firm. And uh, they've done great over the past couple of years. The, the, the company's growing. And of course, when he says, you know, what's next on for their team, he tells me that, well, we're going to leverage technology. It's their competitive advantage. All the same things I hear, hear from everybody. He's also just taken on the role of CTO. He has no business being CTO. He'll, he'll be the first to tell you. He has no background in technology, but he knows he needs to go find this technology. And so he's taken on this role. He knows it's going to be strategic for the company. And so he's in these conversations trying to find technology from vendors that's going to deliver the outcomes he's looking for. Now, this individual, he's, he's had vendors come to him already, and they show up selling products. They sell up, show up selling technology and talking about all the different features that, of the products that they have, and his eyes glaze over. He ha understands zero of what they're saying. Matter of fact, it's embarrassing for him because he doesn't want to look stupid in front of his team. He's literally told me this. And so he kicks them out. He never works for those teams. He's looking for that group that talks in terms of business outcomes. He's looking for that group that is going to listen from a consultative perspective first and then bring the technology behind the scenes. But that's the least exciting thing to him. The least exciting to him thing to him is the technology. He cares only about those business outcomes that incidentally have, happen to have technology paths to get there. And so as we think about that different market, Act 2, we're selling products, we're selling technology, we're talking to technology enthusiasts. Act 3, we're talking to a much bigger market, much bigger opportunity, but very often not very technologically inclined. They know the outcomes they want to have. They want to be led through this process. They don't want to buy the pieces and products and put it together on their own. They want to have everything assembled for them. They want to see seamless integration into their existing technology, into their existing operating system. And that's what they're buying. The tech has about 10% of that story. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's a very succinctly way of putting it. And I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people. We will now move into a deep dive. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right. Uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So financial firms want to be thought of as... Technology firms with banking licenses, you know, you, you're already saying in, in the previous example around everyone thinks they're a tech firm now. So if everyone thinks they're a tech firm and you've been at the heart of transforming tech firms, there's got to be some learnings in there for, for everyone else, right? So, you know, if the tech firms are there, all of these financial services firms want to be thought of that way. You know, what can they learn from that? What can they learn from tech firms? Well, a couple of things I would say that tech firms do uniquely well. Uh, one of them, and, and these won't be surprises, but they will be different from the culture that you find, particularly in, in the banking industry, in the financial industry. So as you look at a tech firm, they're willing to take chances and fail fast and with the understanding that they're never going to fail the same way again, right? In other words, we can fail, but, but we have to iterate and debrief from that and, and improve afterwards. But it's in that stretch, it's in that discomfort of trying new things and, and sometimes failing that the great innovations are created. And then you contrast that against the culture that very reasonably exists within the financial sector, right? I mean, there's, there's all sorts of massive downside risk that you have to minimize exposure towards. And, and so there's great reasons why we have a much more measured approach and a measured culture that exists in the financial industry. But I would challenge that, the, that team on the fact that it doesn't have to exist everywhere, right? I mean, of course, in terms of keeping money safe and in terms of security, in terms of 
regulatory compliance, there's, there's no question, there's zero tolerance for any error. You can't accept any mistakes. But as you look at new technology and new ways to reach your customers and thinking outside of the box, they can learn a lot from the tech industry in terms of how they stretch the definition of customer experience. And, and you can see this, I'll give an example with Delta Airlines. Just like everybody's saying, they're becoming a tech company, right? So saying the exact same thing everyone else is. But what I'm really impressed with that they're pulling off is they are giving you an end-to-end experience through their application, through tracking your baggage and sending you a text when it gets off the plane and on the plane. And and just this two-way dialogue that they've created with me as a customer that goes far beyond that very, very short period of time that I'm actually on an airplane. And they've earned my buy-in to this new ecosystem and and to this new relationship with them as a company. And and I'm willing to go on additional adventures with them. If If they, for some reason, got into car rental or hotels or anything else that's associated with my trip, I, they've already earned my trust to go down that path. I think the, the financial industry needs to look at things the same way. How can they enhance the customer experience, go beyond that very small period of time when we have our apps open and, and looking at the actual tool and embed themselves in, into our lifestyle in, in a bigger way? Well, I think it's a, it's a great definition because people talk about the customer experience and people talk about becoming a tech company, certainly within finance, that's the first time I've ever heard anyone talk about a travel company or an airline moving to a tech company. And actually, it was a fantastic definition. It's that constant supply of information to the customer that's meaningful and useful, and they can in- interact on it. So I, th- I thought that was, you know, that, that was really good. Who do you see out there, almost across any industry that you're involved in, that's really at the forefront of, of pushing that customer experience? Because banking organizations talk about it all the time because of the encroachment of the fintech companies in terms of driving a different and better improved customer experience. But who do you see in in your world, in your network, who you think is really pushing the envelope? So I think it's, it's, it's not going to be a surprise, right? It's going to be the same companies that we think of that are driving customer experience. And maybe we wouldn't couch it in those terms, customer experience, but I think that's what it comes down to. So I'll give you an example in Tesla. And, and, and talk about how they've wrapped themselves around integrating seamlessly into our lives and, and into a very unique brand and how the technology fades into the background. Once again, the tech is the least interesting thing here. It's about the outcomes that it delivers. And to tell that story, I'll first contrast it with, with a different experience I had with a different car company. So I was recently looking to buy a car. I sat down in the dealership. It was, uh, I won't talk about the car brand, but at the point where I'm sitting in the car, I really liked it and, and had it, most of the things that I wanted. And the car salesman sitting next to me in the car, and he starts going through the capabilities of their mapping system. And he shows me this huge screen that they have on the, uh, in the front of the car. It's this big, massive screen. And uh, he's telling me about all the capabilities of the software they have embedded there. And as he's telling me these things, and he's, he's talking about how it's going to allow me to you know, see, see where I'm going much easier. You can change different views on the map. What do you think is the one question I asked him about this software as I'm considering how I'm going to use it? Any guesses? How often is it updated? Updated is definitely part of it. Anything else in my lifestyle, any question you think that I would ask, anything that I would ask for, for how it would integrate into the way I already operate? Well, is it seamless in the way you want to operate it? But also, is it secure? My question to him was, 
can I take what's on my iPhone, which is what I use every day? I get texts and I get a, a, a message for a, de a destination that I go pursue. Can I inject that into the software and have that drive my destination? And there's ways to do that. Apple CarPlay is one of the great examples. And, you know, that's, that should be universal. This car didn't have it. And so this, this car salesman says, well, no, it's not going to talk directly with your phone, but let me show you all these other features. He had lost me in that moment. And I think this is the most important piece here. He was selling me technology. He was selling me on the software. And once I saw it, it didn't integrate into my lifestyle. Once I saw it, it, it didn't meet seamlessly the way I'm already operating. I was moving on to a different car. I literally made the decision not to buy that car based on the fact that it, it didn't integrate. And you can think about these developers behind the scenes who are thinking about, once again, iterating on that software and all the investment and time they put into building this incredible mapping software. Uh, and, and it probably was great. It was it might have been a generation ahead of what's available anywhere else, but it didn't matter because they had forgotten about the customer experience and how that integrates into my life. And so you contrast that with Tesla, who's constantly iterating and they're constantly getting feedback on how we're using their vehicles and how we're in, you know, integrating with, with their other existing things in our technology ecosystem. And so they've created such a short feedback loop. And as you said earlier, Matthew, how often do they update? Well, that's, that's the critical question, right? How do we shorten that feedback loop so they can get information quickly, make a change, and then integrate that into the user experience? Not improving the software. It's not the bells and whistles of the software. It's integrating into the user experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally resonates with me. My last car was a was a Tesla Model 3, absolutely the best car I've ever had in my life. Um, and if the Model X was available now in the UK, I'd be buying one, but it's not. So actually, so I switched to uh, another brand for the time being. And there's some things I like about it, but I really miss my Tesla. Very great. Oh, a very good example. So uh, moving this on a little bit then. So do you think transformations become a bit of an overused term in business? You know, is it is it that these are just change projects or change programs? Or, or do you think that's the case? Or is there something more transformational about transformation? Well, certainly the term transformation is overused by that. But let's think about, you know, what's what are we asking of our teams? And, and, and what's, what's the difference? We'll use VMware as an example. What's the difference between an act two success story and an act three success story. And I would argue that the culture and operating model that made us successful in an act two scenario is very different from the culture and operating model that is going to make us even more successful in an act three scenario, allow us to reach our customers in a more meaningful way, allow us to work backwards from outcomes and create a feedback loop that we can iterate on products, not for the sake of making the product better, but for the sake of making the customer experience better. That's a very different mindset, very different culture, very different operating model, very different way of communicating in that third act. And so just by default, we've established there's a chasm between those two acts, right? Between the way we went to market in act two and act three. So it necessitates a transformation. Is the word overused? You bet. Maybe what we need to consider is that it's no longer evolutionary change, right? Evolutionary change is iterative. It's making things a little bit better within the current paradigm. This is revolutionary change. We need to have constructive disruption. We need to think about how we would build this back again from scratch if we were just starting act three with all the resources that we have right now. And I guarantee you it would be very different. And, and that's, that's the type of thinking that's gonna allow us to accelerate this, this transformation into the third act. I, I like that term revolutionary change or revolutionary transformation. I think it uh, makes a ton more sense than than incremental evolutionary change. So uh, yeah, I get that. I get that. So with with what you've seen 
happen with tech firms as they've been approaching transformation? What do you think the key ingredients there in the recipe for success is? You mentioned culture, but what does the culture need to be or, or how does that need to, to change or, or work? So, you know, I'm a firm believer that there are no new ideas under the sun, meaning we don't have to invent anything on our own. We should always look at previous examples and leverage insights from another person's experience, another team's experience in order to be successful in, in our efforts. And so the, the one I'll bring up is Microsoft. I think they're a great example of going from a heavily product-focused, heavily, heavily siloed organization into an organization that's now made the, a strong shift into working backwards from customer outcomes. Not perfect, certainly things they can do better, but let's take a look at what that transformation looked like from their perspective. So their previous chapter under Bomber was heavily focused on very, very competitive elements within the company. All the products you know, almost competed with one another for resources. They liked it that way. That kept the each team sharp, but at the same time, it, it didn't allow them to reach the customer in an Act 3 scenario very effectively. So then you have Satya take over uh, in the organization. And if you look at what he details in his book, Hit Refresh, and, and what some of the studies have said, his, his first action he took, and this is a product person, by the way, it's, it's important to remember, this is a technologist. This is somebody who grew up enamored with the technology, who was a developer, and, and has all of those, that, that DNA to worship the technology, but he made the important distinction at this point to know that it, it had to be less about the technology in this next chapter and more about outcomes and more about ubiquitous integration into the existing lifestyle. And so he said, it's no longer about phones and PCs. Now it's about mobile and cloud. And he took it up a level and he said, we're going to create outcomes in that environment. And he said, we're going to go away from the warring factions that we were in the past. And I'm going to build alignment and unity. And he created this picture of where we, where we are today, where we need to go. When you had submit on the call on, on one of the podcasts, he talks about creating that clear vision for success and how you need to talk in terms of the customer's vision. And I love that. That's, that's exactly the terms we're using at VMware right now as well. Where are we right now? What's our vision for success? And what's the delta between those two places? And what Satya articulated very well is that the difference is not to go back to the, the well of, of changing technology and, and just leveraging that to find a better product. The difference is in changing the culture. The difference is in changing the operating model. That's a little bit of an uncomfortable thing for somebody to say. You can imagine he's, this is, he's enthusiastic <laughs> about the technology. That's what he's grown up on. But it was a, a very well-established transformation to, that had to start with a culture and operating model switch. What's interesting for me in this is that if you think about some of the challenges that financial services organizations have had in terms of trying to be more fintech-like, not just in terms of the business agility, but the technology agility to move to agile, they, the, the common theme, the common blocker is culture and people. Choosing what you do is a relatively easy thing to do. Getting people to march to that rhythm and that beat with, and, and sign up for that direction is a much, much harder thing to do. And it's really quite interesting and I'd argue refreshing that you hear it in the context of not only ourselves in terms of that cultural change from Act 2 to Act 3, but also in companies as vast and large as Microsoft where people wouldn't see that change necessarily. They wouldn't see that necessity that Microsoft have to change. So it's really, really interesting. 
as human beings, we resist change. And of course, change is harder than what we're currently doing. And so in order to buy into the change, two things really have to occur. This is, and if you remember back to the beginning of this podcast, you asked me why I joined VMware right now. It comes down to the fact that we have both elements necessary for change. We have a burning platform, meaning we have all the right pieces assembled. We have act two success, but that's not guaranteed into the future because the market is changing around us. So there's a burning platform that exists for us today. And we have the second thing, which is a massive opportunity, both a reason to leave where we're currently at, as well as this great opportunity for us to reach up and go after something new. And the combination of those two elements are, are really what create the, the most exciting transformations. That's what Satya relied on at Microsoft. There's a lot of things they had to move away from, but he also painted the picture for what, what they needed to move towards. Yeah, I like that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So thinking a bit about culture a bit more then, and and again, you know, maybe some of your experiences from military through to enterprise and the advisory uh, work that you've been doing. So what are your thoughts on try, fail, but always make new mistakes versus an environment where m mistakes just aren't tolerated? And, you know, in financial services, you've some mistakes you could make, you know, you're then in sort of some maybe some regulatory hot water or you, you know, or your managers might not be very happy with you or, you know, there's, okay, we've empowered you, but there's a consequence to you getting it wrong. You know, there's, there's kind of like a more of an environment of don't take the risk versus try, fail, fail fast, move on. I'd love to contrast your military thinking there to your enterprise thinking. So it's a very insightful question because what you're really tapping into is when do we have permission to fail and how do we grant that to our teams within the constraints of not reaching the customers? And you gave the military example. I'll tell you the one from my past that, that resonates the most with me. So towards the end of my career in the military, I was lieutenant colonel. Uh, I had risen to a rank where I was typically the highest ranking person in every formation that I flew with. And that sounds good, but what it really amounts to is that because I was the highest ranking and had the most experience, I was typically paired up with a student that would be flying on my wing and that was not doing very well in the program, right? This is a student who's struggling and I'm, I'm the most experienced, so I'm gonna invest in them and help them to get through whatever challenges they have. Sometimes this student was doing so badly that if they have another bad flight, this is gonna be the end of their journey, right? And this is, they're they they are now at the point where they're being assessed and whether or not they continue on this path. And you have to remember that these men and women have been dreaming about this moment their entire lives. This is what they hoped for forever. They memorized all the Top Gun quotes and they can tell you all the specs on the airplanes. <laughs> and now they're sitting across from me and this might be their last flight. If they do poorly again, they're going to be flying a desk from this period forward and they're, they're never going to have this dream come true. And you can imagine they're very, very nervous as they sat there. I would start off our briefings the exact same way every single time. I would say the following. You will not have a perfect flight today. I will not have a perfect flight today. As a matter of fact, in more than 2,500 missions, I've never flown a perfect sortie. I'm not assessing you on your ability to fly perfectly. I'm assessing you on your ability to adapt and react when the inevitable mistake occurs. I don't expect perfection, but I do expect you to be impeccable. There's a difference. Impeccable means we can never compromise safety of flight while we're flying. Impeccable means to us at VMware, we can never impinge on the customer experience. But we need to iterate, we need to take chances, and we need to fail in some cases, knowing that we're never going to fail the same way twice, and that it's in those failures that we learn the most. 
So giving our teams permission to fail, acknowledging that failures are going to occur no matter what, the worst thing we can do is brush it under the rug, but also saying we have constraints around where we can fail and how far that can go is a really powerful thing to tell an organization, whether that's in banking and, and you've established some very, you know, very strict constraints around what that failure can look like, or we're doing something innovative and we're bringing, building a new product and it needs to, we need to take massive chances, that, but that's the conversation we need to have with our teams in order to build that level of trust. I think, you know, in that, that, same, that same example, it's not that every day you work in financial services and you're taking that many chances, risks or other things that you're going to, you know, impact customers, consider outages or, or, or those things. It's just at some point there's a decision point uh, or at some point there's something, you know, something different that you're going to need to do. For, not, for 99% of the people, 99% of the time, you know, is following the process, following the day job, following the script, serving the customer, helping them get the outcomes they require, not taking huge risks with the, you know, could impact the reputation of the firm or, you know, or impact that customer service. So, so yeah, I really love that example, Joel. I think it's, uh, I think it really resonates well. Brian, anything else you want to go on? I'm in consumption mode at the moment. I'm, it's making me think, which is always a good problem. <laughs> I don't get to do it very often. Okay. So, and, and, and as Matthew knows, I normally fill the space, but I'm actually quiet because I'm actually really thinking about some of the things that you're saying, Joel, that resonate so well. All right. So following on from that last one, then, a lot of time's also spent on reputation management so that people are maybe discouraged from saying things publicly and, you know, certainly in social media. And, and, and from my perspective, that's been a big difference coming to a tech firm or certainly this tech firm where actually, you know, we encourage people to talk on social media. We encourage people to amplify stories. We encourage, you know, people to talk in, in things like career websites or otherwise. And, and you know, sometimes we win some some awards in those as well for being great for being a great place to work but but my experience on the other side had been actually that sort of stuff was kind of discouraged you know what are your thoughts then on that side of culture you know you know how do you how do you kind of help harness the desire that you kind of yes you get everybody on the same page everybody's everybody's kind of understanding what's important and obviously not divulging secrets but being a little bit more open and a little bit more free yeah. Once again, I think it comes back to giving teams permission um, to disagree. Just like we, we're giving them permission to fail and acknowledging that failure will occur, it's, it's giving them permission to disagree. So let's take a couple of those examples. And you talked about how in the tech community, we are just we just are very much more blunt, much more direct about what we're doing well, what we're being challenged by. And, and in other places, they're, they're much more guarded and, and protected in, in that respect. I would say if you want to avoid your team members jumping on social media and saying all the things that they they think are negative about your organization, then you missed the opportunity. You need to have, create the opportunity to have that conversation internally, right? In other words, the, those debriefs need to take place and you need to give that channel, that outlet to your team because very often that starts from a constructive place. Those conversations begin with somebody saying, I'm seeing a picture and a problem that I don't think others are. I, I think I see a path to, to a solution. Even if I don't see the solution, I at least need to raise my hand 
and say, here's a problem that we need to address. And if they don't feel heard in that constructive channel, then we run the risk of it going to a destructive channel and, and going outside of the company. So once again, it's, it's about encouraging that conversation as much as possible internally, not discouraging the opposite of what our, our knee-jerk reaction is as humans. And that's to say, push it away because we're, we're never going to really push it away. When we, when we ask our team, like, why are we going to fail? What's the most likely reason that we're, we're not going to be successful in this initiative? People may resist that and say, well, I don't want to start thinking pessimistically or I don't want to, you know, create these thoughts in their heads. Nobody's creating this thought. If I asked you why we're not going to be successful, you already have a couple of reasons you're thinking about. We need to give voice to those right now. We need to discuss that and we need to debate and commit, meaning not everything is about having a disagreement and, and we don't get the luxury of continuing this debate forever, where at some point we have to commit as a team, but we at least have to create that period where we can have that dialogue and, and talk about where we don't agree. And then the leaders get, you know, pay the big bucks to make the decisions. And then really the buck stops at their desk. So at some point they have to make a decision one way or the other. We don't necessarily reach consensus, but what we have to reach is a place where we've all been heard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tongue in cheek with this last, this question. So what are your thoughts on talent? Does everyone need to be a rock star or a Top Gun? <laughs> it's so interesting because I, my, my mind has changed on this in a big way. It's probably the most important transformation that I've made in life. I remember showing up at flight school and thinking, I wonder if I have what it takes. I wonder if I'm going to be one of those people that just has the natural skills. And that's kind of what we're taught throughout life, right? Like somebody's naturally good at sports or somebody's naturally smart. I'm told I'm smart or I'm told I'm not smart or whatever these things are. We, we grow up with a bit of a fixed state mindset and we're either one thing or we're not. And when I got to flight training, what I learned, especially when I became an instructor in the same program, is that the, the skills people showed up with were very often not connected whatsoever with how they finished that program. And it had very little to do with whatever we call natural talent. It had much more to do with how we invest in our mastery, with how we're willing to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. I think the most dangerous thing in the world is to have a fixed state mindset, because if you do, then you're thinking I'm either smart and the world's proving me wrong and they're not giving me my shot and I don't get enough chances, or you think I'm dumb and, and you know I, I'm, ne I'm never gonna be the person that's gonna be successful. Both of those are bad, bad states. But if you have a growth mindset, if you have the mentality that I may not be where I'm at, I need to be today, but there's a path to get there. I can invest in that path. And, and the, the master's degree level of, of this thought process is for an organization, this is uh, creates an exponential opportunity because one plus one equals 100 when we all have that growth mindset. That's, that's the most powerful thing we can have. So the longest way ever of answering your question, but I don't believe whatsoever in innate talent. I believe 100% in our ability to invest in ourselves, invest in our teams and develop what we need to be successful. Spot on. And, and that kind of growth ever always learning mindset, I think is, is critical. Exactly right. Okay. So Joel, you talked about your role. What does success look like for you in your new role? In my new role, taking on a great opportunity, we already described VMware of Act 2, the culture and the operating model that has served us so well to get to this point, but how there's a different culture and operating model that we need to pursue as we enter Act 3 and, and reach our customers in, in an even more meaningful way. And there's many teams across VMware that are helping to cross that chasm. And there's a, a massive investment into, into transforming the organization to get there. My part of that transformation is threefold. One, it's helping us to view the company with top-down alignment 
and horizontal integration. We're using OKRs, objectives and key results. And so from the office of the CEO, you've seen the new fiscal year strategy memo, which clearly articulates the vision for the future, the top priorities for the entire company, and it aligns. Remember, Act 2 was about silo focus, about product focus. Now we're looking at this from a higher level, from, from the CEO level, and even more importantly, from an ecosystem level. How do we integrate in with, with the rest of the partnerships across the, and alliances across the ecosystem? And Regu has spelled that out very clearly. We're helping to develop cascading OKRs where we see the fingerprints from Regu's vision on the, the, super, the, 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 uh, the groups below it. So for the senior leadership team, they're creating their objectives and key results. That's the top-down alignment we want to create. But in addition to that, we want to create horizontal integration. We want to be able to see the fingerprints on each of these strategies from these other groups, these other silos that we haven't necessarily worked with in the past. And of course, as we start to build this, that one of the first things we'll see is that there's gonna be blind spots, right? We're, we're gonna expose the fact that it, maybe we don't have perfect alignment horizontally. And this is a new muscle for us to flex, and, but this is the point of it, that we're, we're finally able to see where we're aligned, where we're not aligned, where we have some work to do, and that OKR process will help us to see it. That's step one. Step two is to create a single pane of glass from which we can view all of this strategy and we can view the progress against it. And so we have brought in a tool to be able to leverage across the entire company where we'll maintain this strategy. What anybody, any person within the company, doesn't matter if it's your first day working here, you can go in here and into this tool and see what Regu defines as the objectives and key results, see what the leaders define as theirs. You can look at the strategy. You can input yourself into how you're going to help with this transformation from the first day you're here. And that's that's new as well. That's new. We haven't necessarily had that level of transparency in the past, and that's a really important step as we look to create that vision for success that everyone can play a part in. And then the third thing that I'm doing, so we've got the OKR system, one tool with which we view it all, a dashboard to view the transformation. The third thing is activating a portion of the organization to help own this transformation. And for me, the portion of the organization, the tier that I'm tapping into are the senior directors. And the senior directors are some of our key leaders within the company. They've risen in, among the ranks in the, in the silo that they've worked in. They've created all the technical skills to operate within a product unit or within a functional group within the company. And right now, they're getting ready to branch out into their next opportunity. And we want to show them that that opportunity is not to continue along this stovepipe in the silo where they've been in the past for that Act 2 model, but instead to branch out and develop a cross-functional network across the organization, to activate the senior director tier to work pan-VM or cross-sectionally across the organization for customer outcomes that leverage all these different great silos and functional groups within the VMware team and come up with a common vision and plan and then hold them accountable to owning the outcomes that we built in that strategy. It's an incredible team, the senior directors, some of the best leaders in the company, some of the most underutilized resources, and uh, we're gonna help to activate that group to, to new heights. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, look forward to playing our part, right? It's going to be an amazing journey. I'm really excited about it. Okay, Joel, inside industry, back into your military career, have you got any examples in the past which are similar in nature to the type of transformation that we're trying to go through as a company? The one that jumps to mind for me is the following. So in the late 60s, early 1970s timeframe, uh, the United States was in the Vietnam War. And during the Vietnam War, we had the best airplanes, we had the best trained pilots, we had the best missiles, the best technology effectively, right? And 
during that time, we started to see a surprising trend. We started to see that we were uh, losing airplanes at an unacceptable rate. We were still w- winning across the board, but it was losing at an unacceptable rate, certainly in terms of lives and aircraft and, and unpredictably because we had the best technology. This shouldn't be taking place. And so they brought teams together to inspect this and, and figure out why this was occurring, what we could do differently to help protect these, these team members. And they had two groups inspect this. It was the United States Air Force and the United States Navy. They came to different conclusions. The United States Air Force said, you know what? We just need to invest in technology even more. Let's get better airplanes. Let's get better missiles. Let's train our pilots a little bit more and and give them whatever tools they need to be successful, just a little bit better airplane. The Navy approached it differently. They said, you know, I don't think we're going to get much more out of investing in airplanes right now. I don't think we're gonna get much more out of having better weapons. I think what's happened is that the battlefield has become so complex and we've acquired all this different technology and all of these different competencies that our success today comes less down to that individual in the cockpit and that individual aircraft capabilities. And it comes down more to how we integrate all of this holistically across the battlefield. How do all of these groups work together to create success in this environment? And so from this equation, from this time period, came the Top Gun School. Everybody's seen Top Gun movie, and it's, and it's cheesy and funny and you know exciting at the same time. But that's a real school. And, and what it was originally designed to do was it was designed to take all the leaders from these disparate silos in the military that never really worked together. And as standalone units, they were doing great. They were doing all the evolutionary change they're supposed to do and, and, and arguably the best in the world at what they did. But they weren't integrated holistically. And so they had to bring these teams together, the best and the brightest, and allow them to see the competencies of all these other groups and then start to build the bigger picture with these different puzzle pieces and start to figure out how to work together across the organization to create new impact and and new success stories on the battlefield. And it was transformative for our abilities. And so let's look at the two different approaches. The Air Force said we're going to invest more in technology. And the Navy said we need to invest in cross-functional leadership skills, in cross-functional alignment, and on a disciplined execution rhythm across that group. The Air Force actually started losing more airplanes. They invested more in their technology, and they, they were go- continued down that negative trend. The Navy uncovered this opportunity to build a much bigger picture for success, and it's allowed us to to reach new heights uh, since then. And the other thing I'll add, because the question inevitably becomes, well, haven't we taken our eyes off of technology then? Haven't we stopped looking at how we're going to iterate in this example against airplanes? The opposite took place. Because once we had the bigger picture of the battlefield, we stopped thinking about what would be a great iteration for that airplane, and we started thinking about what would be a great iteration for outcomes on the battlefield. And we worked backwards from that instead. That became our new focus. I think it's a perfect analogy for what companies face in the tech sector right now. It's less about building better technology and this endless rat race against finding a new feature or something that's going to improve the technology or the product. And it's more about how does everything integrate and come together? How do I work cross-functionally across my organization, across the ecosystem to deliver outcomes? 
And this, is, this has been seen in business since then. In GE, um, in the 80s, when they delivered their massive transformation, they had all these disparate business groups and they created a cross-functional leadership laboratory at Crotonville where they, they gave them leadership skills to be plugged into any one of these places. And GE was, you know, of course, a stalwart of the, the 20th century because of that. And, and other organizations have built similar models as well. And I think that's, that's the call to action. The, the success stories we read about in five years from Harvard Business Review and, and other places are going to be about how teams operationalized cross-functionally at a time when it was harder to do it than ever before. We're all staring into the cameras right now. Our, our relationships are limited to, you know, our interactions in this, this strange new teleconference world exclusively. And so the new superpower for success becomes how do we better align our teams against common outcomes, create the communication, create the operating model, and create the culture that thrives in that environment. Wow. Outstanding. Outstanding. Let's move on. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. So I think you may have just answered this question with that last answer. However, uh, we'll give it a try. So, Joe, you know, what do you think will be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for 2022 and beyond? And how do you think this might help or hinder tech firms? It, it's going to come down to how well we transition our culture and our operating model to, to operate holistically. So in other words, the companies we read about in five years, the most successful organizations are going to be ones that best communicate a common vision, that best articulate the strategy to pursue that vision, that are able to have aligned execution behind the scenes. And, and you know, keeping in mind, we're probably going to be in this remote work from anywhere environment for a long period of time. And so in this environment, how can we transition that from being a liability to a superpower? The teams that create that alignment and are able to still build that and, and continue forward forward are going to be the ones we read about. It's going to be less around technology advances. It's going to be less around point solutions. And it's going to be much more about shifting your people and your operating model into this new paradigm. I thought you might say something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a trend. There's definitely a theme. All right. Fabulous. Let's move on. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lighting round. The lightning round begins now. Okay, this is the um, this is what we've all been building up to, really. This is the the fast and fun round. Pass is absolutely okay, uh, although if you do pass, we take a note and then we you know we have some fun at your expense another time. Uh, but a pass really is okay. Now, let's see how many of these we can answer. I'll kick it off with you. Know, what's your favorite book or movie? Favorite book, the one I gift the most is. Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Cool, indeed. Okay, Joel, if you had a time machine, would you go back in time or would you go into the future? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go strange on this answer. I wouldn't use it. Uh, I love my past. I love everywhere, everywhere that I've been. And, you know, I'm happy with, with decisions I made, but this is the best time to be alive. Right now, this second, I wouldn't want to be in the future. I want to stay right here and, uh, and be in this moment. Okay, so who's your mentor or have you been most inspired by? Good question. So uh, the person I've been most inspired by probably had the most impact on, on this chapter of my career. I'd have to say Pat Gelsinger and uh, had a, a close relationship with him over the past eight years. And, and he mentored me um, in my professional role, in my faith walk, in, in my job as a father, and, and certainly I've appreciated all of his insights. What piece of career advice do you wish you had given your younger self? 
So prior to having cancer, I was, I was a different person. I was much more focused on managing perceptions of me. I was uh, you know, afraid to fail, uh, certainly afraid to fail publicly. And so I didn't take many chances. Cancer taught me that I was, I was living a foolish life and that uh, as I thought I was dying, all of a sudden, I, my biggest regret was that I didn't take more chances. I didn't regret the failures. I didn't regret the things I, I could care less about the things that I failed at. And so what I would tell a younger version of me, particularly pre-cancer, is just go out there and try everything. Because the little secret I've learned in middle age is that whether you're winning or losing, people really aren't paying that much attention to you. We work so hard to manage what others think about us. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you've hit the highest heights or you're hitting the lowest lows. Most of the time, people are so wrapped up in their own heads, they're really not paying attention to you. So you might as well go out there and just swing for the fences and do something amazing and maybe even fail at it because that's what's going to be your life story that matters the most. Uh, what are you most excited for about the future? I, I love being a part of challenging situations. I, I, I love being, you know, and my favorite thing, the thing I seek is to be on an elite team on an inspiring mission. And so I'm ecstatic about this new chapter. I pick a, a new role in a new chapter about every decade. And so I searched long and hard before I made this transition to VMware. And, I, and it was something that I thought about for a long time. And I'm most excited uh, for the journey that we're all on together. I'm sure you've traveled a great deal, but what's your favorite place to travel? My favorite place I've ever been in the world, in Italy, probably not a big surprise, on the coast, uh, just amazing views, uh, you know, just amazing part of, of, of world history and, and everything that's taking place there. It's, it was an incredible experience. When was the last time you used cash and what did you use it for? Oh my, I haven't had cash or change in my hand in over a decade. I honestly couldn't tell you. Probably putting a quarter in a video game 20 years ago. Here's an interesting question for someone that's obviously the better pilot. So favorite means of travel, boat, train, or plane? Plane, but probably not for the reason you'd think. I flew enough times where it's not my absolute passion anymore. And, you know, it's kind of like driving a car for me at this point, but I still appreciate the views. I don't necessarily appreciate the act of flying like I used to. Um, and, and that's okay. It's just become rote. But flying and being up in the sky is my happy place. Okay, okay. Back down to earth then. Should a car have a name? And if so, what's yours called? Should a car have a name? My car is not named, but if I were to pick one, I'd go back to my roots and the 80s, and I would call it Kit. Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> As everyone has, right? <laughs> it's very difficult to ask someone that's been a fighter pilot, what's the worst job you've ever had? But I, I, I guess there's some tasks. So what's the worst job or task you've ever had? So the, no, that's an easy one for me, actually, because before I was a fighter pilot, I worked at Wendy's and uh, I was so a fast food restaurant. And at that fast food restaurant, I kept getting in trouble because I was putting on too much mustard on the on the hamburgers. And the manager, I, I can clearly picture him saying how strong of a condiment that mustard is. And I need to realize what, what the, what's happening to the customers when that occurs. And so he fired me from making sandwiches. And all I was allowed to do was make change. I literally stood behind the cash register. Somebody else would hand out the money and I'd tell them what the change was going to be. And uh, that was my entire job. What sport would you compete in if you were in the Olympics? That's easy. American Ninja Warrior. I'm on, uh, I compete on that TV show uh, the last two seasons. And uh, it's another thing I've failed spectacularly at in a very public way. But, uh, but it's a blast. And I would love to, uh, to see that as an Olympic sport. It's a mundane one, but you know, everyone's got a choice. Tea or coffee? Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, gentlemen? Tea? No, I like my coffee. I like coffee. Uh, so I have to have a coffee in the morning and then I switch to tea for the rest of the day. 
So there you go. There you go. Most important question of all of these. Um, if you were an ice cream, what flavor would you be? Vanilla. About <laughs> <laughs> as unexciting as it gets. But, but, I, but honestly, that's, uh, that's yeah, I, I, I kind of like to fade into the background and on a great team and, uh, and not stand out. So I'm, I'm happy being vanilla. Okay. <laughs> Top Gun School. Um, if you have to sing karaoke, what song do you pick? Every single time, don't stop believing. And every single time, uh, it will be horrible. <laughs> Joel, fabulous. Thank you so much for giving us your time today, spending the time with us and, and telling us about, about your journey and the, um, and the vision of where we're going. It's been really, really interesting and insightful. I'm looking forward to sharing this episode. So thank you so much. My privilege, Matthew and Brian. I'm really excited to be on the same team as we move forward on this journey. And uh, it was great to chat with you. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. To keep up with Joel, please follow him on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll have links in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Matthew O'Neill or Brian Hayes at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or our podcast on Twitter at dbtbpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and could leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that would be really appreciated. And if you have ideas for future episodes or would wish to appear as a future guest, then please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.